Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Dr. Session, how you doing? I'm good, Zachary. How are you? I'm doing really well. You know, I've, I've been really looking forward to like having you on Living Corporate for a while. Um, let's start with your your background, the fact that you you are a PhD, right? Like what does that add to your profile or what how do you believe that empowers you in the in the work that you do um, from a from a leadership development, from a diversity and inclusion and belonging perspective? Like how does that add dimensionality to your work? Well, I can tell you it definitely changed the dynamic of the relations I have with my executives. I think that when they feel that they're sitting across the table from someone who, A, has a level of experience that I do. You know, I've been in HR for over 30 years. I've been the head of HR where I sat at the table with executives for 10 of those years. And then you add in the work I've done in the diversity space since 2007. And then you layer that with the fact that I have, you know, doctor in front of my name, right? So I think that not only adds a different layer of validity to the work that I'm doing, but also it, it makes people really want to pay attention to um, what I'm telling them. And I, I, and I think that is what makes the work that much easier is because I don't encounter as much resistance. You know, as I was kind of looking into your profile, like, and just looking at, at the content that you've published and the things that you, you speak about, you know, you talk about um, psychological safety. I, I think I'd like mm-hmm. to, I'd like to, I'd like to sit there for a second and really like, hear you wax poetic a bit on just like what is psychological safety and mm-hmm. and its relevance to black and brown folks in the workplace yeah it's a term that people really are just starting to get familiar with i would say over the last couple of years since the untimely murder of george floyd um, when black people and brown people really started talking about what their experiences felt like in the workplace especially when they're the only one or one of few and what we revealed through those conversations was that we didn't feel safe in the workplace. We didn't feel safe being our true authentic selves. We had to change or alter parts of who we are, whether it was our personalities, the way we dress, the way we wore our hair, um, you know, the way we expressed ourselves and our facial expressions, um, because they were all being misinterpreted. And then we experienced microaggressions and high levels of bias and discrimination as a result of that. We couldn't take the same risks that our white counterparts could take. We couldn't uh, voice our opinions around the table the way our white counterparts could without either them being disregarded or ridiculed or in some ways us being um, uh, retaliated against because of it. So when you put all that on the table and you unpack all that, that means the workplace was not safe. It wasn't safe for us psychologically. Physically, yes, we could show up and there would be no physical harm brought to us in most cases, but 
we did not feel that mental well-being part of it. And, and that's the part that I think a lot of companies are hopefully paying attention to now to create a place of inclusion and belonging for all of their employees. I don't want to leave anyone out of the conversation, but for all of their employees. Women experience it too, right? So one of the biggest microaggressions about women is being talked over in meetings and their opinions not being taken seriously and them not being respected as leaders. So it's across the board in terms of psychological safety. You know, it's interesting to your point, it, th- what you're describing, it reminds me of um, some years ago I was, um, and while I was in consulting, I remember I was the only black man, the only black person and the only man. I'm actually on my immediate wow. team and uh, and with other, all, everyone else was white women. And I recall being consistently microaggressed or macroaggressed mm-hmm. in terms of my, my intelligence being questioned, mm-hmm. uh, folks questioning if like, well, you know, you're using these words. I don't feel like that's really you. Like, it feels like you're putting on a show. Like, how do you really talk? And mm-hmm. I was like, white. Like, you're so articulate. What are you saying? <laughs> I'll never forget one time I said, I used the word ruminate. So I need to mm-hmm. ruminate on that. And they were like, and they said, um, I feel like, I feel like you don't know what that word. I said, and I looked up, I, I, we Googled it together. Wow. And I, and I said, ruminate means to, to think about something. It's the second definition. The first definition, the origin is of um, a cow eating grass and chewing it <laughs> over and over. But the second definition and the definition that's commonly used in social contexts is to think about or ponder or to reflect for a period of time. So I or think I, about it over and over, like the cow chewing the grass, like the chew, like the cow chewing the grass. Like I don't understand, you know what I mean. So, but I, but my point is, I recall, mm-hmm. I recall in that season, I recall just not feeling that was the issue. Is I didn't feel, and so what happened was it impacted my confidence, it impacted my performance, and impacted. Uh, my own just whatever and like some of that is also like okay how much of that do you have to make sure you have an inner sense of worth and like you don't let everything dictate everyone and though not but and i'd say it's challenging when like literally your entire environment is questioning your validity right um and your right to if you should even be in the seat that you sit Mm -hmm. right um and i think like i think there's this there's there's a large element like how racism um misogyny all the isms, how they show up for for folks, for um, historically marginalized folks is like through resentment. Like folks just resent you, resent your presence, right? Yes. Um, they resent you, even just like existing. And how mm-hmm. like how how or or you can exist, but you better not exist in a space higher than me. Because the other context is I was the manager, right? So I was supposed to be the project manager of the team. I was supposed to be leading the team. Wow. Right. But everyone was questioning and challenging me on every little thing. And then I'd be like, okay, what what are you saying? Right. And I'd ask a couple of follow-up questions, and be like, okay, I did that already, or okay, no, I disagree, or whatever the case is. It's just in- so it's interesting. Like, so when you talk about psychological safety, what are some ways that you believe executive organizations or executive leadership teams can create more psychologically safe environments? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is lead by example. So they have to be willing to have their own level of transparency, vulnerability. Um, They have to give people who don't look like them space around tables or on projects or in conversations, even as sponsors, um, to open up doorways for them, open up opportunities, you know, those little those little things, I call them the little small hinges, they open big doors, right? So the culture has to be one where that's demonstrated on a regular basis, where you see people taking risks that look like you. You see people 
asking questions and challenging decisions without receiving any type of negative repercussions because of it. Um, they're actually rewarded because of it, right? Because they have diversity of thought. And if that's not happening, then yes, there, there leads to question whether or not this is a place where I could be my true authentic self, where I can um, challenge the status quo. And, you know, I tell people, just look around and see how people are expressing themselves physically. How are they dressing? Do you feel like that's who they are in terms of, you know, how they wear their hair? Um, you know, do you see more women wearing their hair in natural, more black and brown women wearing their hair in a natural state? Or do you not? Do you see, um, you know, men, black and brown men being able to wear their hair in this natural state and not feeling that they have to conform or assimilate or uh, reduce who they are, pieces of who they are in order to have that seat at the table? You know, it's 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 interesting, like as we look at like this DEI space, I, I'm curious to get your reactions to this, like more and more, Dr. Session, I, just, I really feel like this work in like in a corporate capitalist context is really like just a scam like it's like a way <laughs> it's like a way to like placate um non-white or non-majority spaces and also to gently or to more genteely encourage like assimilation mm-hmm. but not necessarily like i don't believe like i think there's like two distinct camps i think there's like this one camp of dei that's like hey we're here for like radical transformation and reimagination and dismantlement dismantling of oppressive systems then there's this other camp that thinks that they're here for those things but they're really like co-opting like historically like they're co-opting language to really like reaffirm the status quo Uh like do you sense that and like the work that you do because I, i recognize like you work with a bunch of different brands. You're always speaking and educating and engaging in some space. Like, I'm curious, like, do you see that same tension? Do you feel like I'm oversimplifying it? No, I definitely see that. And 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 it's unfortunate is what I'll say as someone who's been, as I said, in this space since 2007. So I've been doing this disruptive work since then in yes. one way, shape, form or another. Um, and sometimes even before it was even called diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Some companies didn't even really know what it was I was doing. Um, but I think that... Um, especially over the last couple of years, uh, Zachary, that some people got into this space because it was the end thing to do. It was uh, quick and fast money and they did more mm-hmm. harm than good. And, and I'm waiting for them to just kind of fall by the wayside and move aside and let the professionals get in here and clean up their mess because I've been called in to clean up the mess of people who have done this. Um, you know, who, because they had a black or brown face thought this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And oh, by the way, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. I'm not going to say the word uh, systemic racism or white supremacy or oppressive behaviors. Like those things are going to be too disruptive. They're not ready to hear that. Well, they're not ready to hear that conversation. They're not ready to do the work Uh, because you have to hold a mirror up to the CEOs. You have to hold a mirror up to these leaders and, and, and to the company as a whole, even, you know, to HR and HR. Those are my peers and I have to hold them accountable. Um, so I think if you're of the mindset that um, you don't want to hurt someone's feelings, uh, that you have to uh, walk on eggshells to get this work done, not only will you be ineffective and the employees will see right through you because it's performative, uh, but you're going to also very quickly burn yourself out because you're not going to you're not going to make any uh, see any results. You know, to your point around kind of like folks coming in here for various reasons, like not all of them being tr- like altruistic or just honorable. I'm curious, like, have you heard of the term Jedi? Jedi, yeah. Like, do you think that justice is 
organizational justice is possible within a capitalist context? It depends on the organization. You know, honestly, I've seen some organizations that have justice as part of their work and, and their languaging around this. I've had people who have anti-racism as part of their languaging, accessibility, you know, so it just, it really depends on where they're trying to transform the culture and through what lens. So is it possible? Yes. But again, I think it has to be a very forward-thinking organization from the leadership in particular. They have to, again, have been willing to sit down and sit in their mess and be willing to face it uh, and, and then be willing to do the work and walk the walk and talk the talk. So yes, can justice be part of it? Absolutely. Uh, depending on the organization, that could be the focus that they have. I have uh, an RFP with an organization right now, and that's what they're focused on is justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So let me double click on that. Like when we talk about, and I'm asking because like, I feel like we use words and, I, and I, we use words without really like appreciating what they, like the impact or implication of those words. Like, mm -hmm. so, so justice to me, it sounds like, like justice to me is like, let's say if I, um, it, it comes out that my supervisor was biased against me, gave me a poor, poor performance review, which then impacted my ability to get a raise. Maybe I did not get a raise for a year or, or I didn't, I didn't get a raise and I missed out on a, I missed out on my annual raise. And like, there's mm -hmm. an investigation that happens and we find out, Hey, in fact, you know what? You should have, this should not have happened. Justice in my mind then would demand, okay, one, the person who gave you this poor review, especially if we find out that it was because of some bias or they just wasn't following policy, they're held accountable. We can, you know, we can mm -hmm. support whatever, but also I get back pay for the, the money that I missed over a year. I agree with you. Do you see that? Have you seen that though? Have you seen like that kind of justice, like operationalized, like played out in a company? I have only once in my entire career as the head of HR for organizations. So not going in as a consultant doing this work for organizations, but when I was inside sitting around and doing what they call round tables and having these discussions with the managers and then understanding later on that there were what I call three sides to the story. So they presented the case as X, the employee presented the case as Y, and by the time we did our full investigation, which took some time because we had to talk to other employees, we had to talk to clients as well because this person was a client-facing role, uh, at the end of the day, we found out that this person wanted to withhold money from this individual who was a Black person so that they could give more money to someone else that they were trying to keep on the team that wasn't performing as high as the other. Um, so ultimately, we did not only change the rating, we did give them the raise that they deserve. We did not impact negatively impact the person who did get the raise, um, you know, just to let you know that we didn't do that. And that manager actually um, received their final warning. And within a few weeks, even uh, they resigned and left the organization. Yeah, I mean, that's like my dream. Like, I, and I've been <laughs> <laughs> well so I, i've like i've mentored like several people who have like talked and like what i just described like that's happened to me in terms of like yo like i should have gotten a raise or like just like mm. what's happening here whatever but it's also happened to like several people that i've mentored of course. Right? and so like that's not a that's a common experience for black and brown folks for again for historically marginalized folks and i i think it's happened like, to me <laughs> so you look at that come on now dr session now, so like so i think so it, which kind of leads me to the next question i have is like you know, as we look around the nation, like we're seeing um, 
we continue to see what what are folks we call white lash. We're seeing we're seeing white backlash to to black progress or to any type of level of black consciousness around the oppression of black bodies, right? So like, mm-hmm. so George Floyd was murdered, and everybody was like, "Yo, we care about we care about black people. We're gonna put Black Lives Matter on some bumper stickers. We're gonna put it on the on the floor, on the ground. We're gonna put up put some blimps up, let some streamers fly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." But and now we're seeing like the reaction to all of that, and we're seeing folks outlaw even saying the word racism or outlaw mm-hmm. saying white supremacy. We're seeing laws being erected in Florida mm-hmm. and Texas. And, you know, like we're, we're seeing like the, um, the GOP run on platforms that are really just anti-black. And we're also seeing those folks win. We're seeing traction. We're seeing laws being passed in this mm-hmm. world. We're seeing trans folks being attacked through legislation. Mm-hmm. And so my, mm-hmm. <laughs> so my question, my question is, at what point does DEIB, like as a space, move past seeking to center white comfort and white acceptance? And like, is it possible for this work, again, like in corporate context to exist without it centering or considering uh, white fragilities? That's a good question. I, I think, yes. You know, when I think about some of the people who are doing this work, um, they are having those tough conversations, sitting across the table and holding individuals who don't look like them accountable. I do it as well. I do it in a way that creates a safe space for them um, because I feel that in my work and what has worked successfully is within that safe space is when they're able to have that level of vulnerability, that level of transparency, Uh, ask those scary, awkward questions that they've only asked people who look like them that don't really know the answers. So now they have an opportunity to ask someone who doesn't look like them. What is the impact? What does this feel like? Is this true? In fact, Um, you know, those types of things, right? Now, when we come to laws and, you know, whether it's local, state, or federal, it's risky and it's tricky because in that space, we oftentimes are truly the minority, We may be the minority in the organization, but when you combine us together, we may not be. But when you look at those individuals that are sitting at those spaces in locals, federal and uh, state government, uh, the voices aren't as loud sometimes. And I think that's that's risky. But I also know that we've been here before. Right. So we've been here before when you think about, for instance, uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Mm. Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. where we were thriving, not just surviving and the people on the other side of the railroad tracks didn't like it, right? And so the first opportunity they had, they tore it down and made us run for our lives. And I think that's a little bit of what we're hearing and seeing today. Now, what I am appreciative of is the next generation. So I'm Gen X, I'm 53. I look at the younger Gen Y, I look at Gen Z in particular, and those groups are the ones that are really the zero tolerance group. And I think they're the real disruptors, they're the real... Um, ones that are going to make change happen. I had a client, Zachary, tell me, Dr. Session, I just don't think we're going to see change in our lifetime. He was a Gen X like myself. He said, I think it's going to take another 50 to 100 years because, you know, our our grandparents and some great grandparents have to die off. And that mindset has to, you know, leave this earth in order for us to really see change. And I said, I hope not. 
because then what about the Gen Xers? Because they're going to be grandparents, many of them are already. And does that mean that, you know, we just have to continually die off to see change? But I think the next generation, because they're so socially, ethnically, culturally diverse, naturally, um, that their mindset is, this is just the way it's supposed to be. And we don't understand why it's taking you all this long. What what excites me? So, yes. And that's a beautiful segue because I, I want to talk about the future of work, right? I thought I was like radical and kind of like short fused when it comes to like my expectations at work. I'm not as radical as I thought I was when I like look at my siblings who are all <laughs> like just kind of getting into like they're in their late teens. They're about mm-hmm. uh, uh, my my one of my little sisters. Both 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 of my sisters are uh, twenty and twenty. They're they're in their twenties now. Okay, yeah. And then my my little brothers are seventeen and eighteen, right? And so mm-hmm. how they just think about and expect the world to work, and how they expect the workplace to be in terms of mm-hmm. is just so it's so refreshingly bold. Yes. And like, and and I'll say like, I really don't believe. I know for a fact, actually. Let me not say I don't believe. I know for a fact that workplaces are not prepared for those people where they're not really prepared for millennials are like the majority of the workforce today. And they really not prepared for millennials mm-hmm. and we here, right. And so there's millennials who are like 40 now. Yep. Uh, and so I know for a fact, they're not ready for these 20 sums coming up in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like when you talk about generational diversity and like the implication mm-hmm. of the implication of like this, this workforce that is going to continue to come. In fact, the fact that like, not only is this like, like Gen Z, it's a large workforce coming in, but it's also like the most diverse and socially and like yep. socially educated workforce ever, like in the history of this country. Yep. I'm curious, like what are the implications that you see for companies like and just the future of work as a whole? Yeah. So one of the things I do when I'm doing my work is I teach my uh, executives and, and managers about the impact of the different generations on the workforce. And I pay a lot of attention to Gen Y and Gen Z. And I walk them through the mindset of these groups and ideally what they do expect from organizations. And if they're not already thinking about that, then they're already late to the game. They're behind the eight ball because as you said, millennials have been here. That's when I got my start in diversity work was back in 2007 when they were graduating college. And you know I was on campus recruiting this new generation of workforce. And I was like, whoa, they're asking different kinds of questions here. And what is pet insurance? Why do they care about pet insurance? You know, that type of stuff. And I came back to my CEO and I said, you know, this group is different. Like the way I was recruited and the way that we've been recruited is not going to work. We have to change our entire approach and even our benefits, right? So that's really where I got my start in understanding the diversity of the workforce. And then through there, now weaving that into all of the work that I do to help my leaders understand that, if you're not paying attention to this group already, you've already failed as an organization. And guess what? Your company probably won't be around much longer because they're going to put businesses out. They're going to put companies out of business, period. I think the other thing that like folks don't appreciate, it's not just that like Gen Z are like these like, quote unquote, hyper woke uh, kids who just want like everything handed to them. Like that's a very lazy right. um, and inaccurate analysis of like that group. They also just work faster. Like they ex- like mm-hmm. like like everything about them is just quicker. So like they're expecting they're expecting not just like you know social change like faster because they see they see straight lines where we want to see a bunch of squiggles and detours. <laughs> like they also just see they from a process perspective and what they expect and how work should be done. Like hey, this goes here. Yeah, we do this to here. And so like I believe like my other 
I'm and I'm you know I'm, I'm curious to see how, how the next you know 15 20 years play out is I think that like overly um bureaucratic organizations or just like non-agile organizations like they're going to your point like they are not going to sustain yeah organizations that don't organizations with poor governance strategy who just can't make clear decisions mm-hmm. they don't understand like okay here's how we just here's here's how we uh, process things and move operationally like those are they're just not going to sustain because you're talking to a bunch of people who are used to just working in spaces and doing work on platforms where everything is damn near instantaneous so they're yeah. not going to understand if they have an idea or they want to execute against something why we can't just execute against it right mm-hmm. like and you know there's and there's there's other challenges with that right as it pertains to like okay um collaboration is still a thing negotiation is still a thing so like i'm not saying that and i've had this conversation with a bunch of different folks it's like like i'm not saying that that there that any generation if you were to like kind of make a persona out of any generation that it's right or it's wrong we're just talking about the reality of this persona right, right. like and so like you have to figure out okay how do you navigate against that you know something else is interesting is like i've seen where again like because of the like because we're in this late stage late stage capitalist society like everyone has a side hustle these days like everybody is doing <laughs> something right and like gen z's are the same like they they have they have way bigger, a lot of them have way bigger online profiles than like their Gen X managers, than some of their millennial managers. And so like, even like the implication of, okay, you're about to hire somebody for this nine to five job, but this person who you're hiring has like 40,000 followers on Twitter. They have their <laughs> own, they have their own like brand. Yep. And so like, and so like you're, when you're, you're hiring a person, you're hiring a person, but you're also like hiring a company, a brand, you're yep. hiring a brand. And yeah. so like, and so like, even like employer contracts and like agreements in terms of, you know, when you engage with this individual, you're not engaged with this individual who sits in a, who sits in a basement or sits in a mm-hmm. cubicle all day. You're engaging with this person who has direct access to like 40,000 people or 50,000 right. people. And so, you know, you work in, you know, it's, it's not a relationship between you and this individual. It's just a relationship, again, to your point, but just it's a relationship between you and a brand. Yep. And I don't, and and even that, right? Like that part is, I think, like I think that's a lot for people to like really grasp and like consider the implications of in terms of how you treat them, because you know I, I see on more and more on LinkedIn as LinkedIn continues to try to silence Black and Brown voices or any voice that like you know espouses like anything that's like anti-racist or that's a little makes white folks too uncomfortable. <laughs> I still see a lot of content out there that's like calling co- companies out, like people who have like. I've seen people who have like literally like 60, 70,000 followers on LinkedIn. Dr. Session will be like, yeah, um, I'm at this company. They gave, they put me on a performance improvement plan yep. and it make no sense. Yep. Yep. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I find it hilarious. I, I really love it. Do. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it every time. I love it every time because, I, and I think, and I think that's like the biggest thing is like that, that I think that leads us to like a really good, uh, leads, leads us to a con- potential conversation around like power and like power mm-hmm. dynamics. I think like when we look at technology, like, and it's like, I believe that technology has like radically changed power scaling and power dynamics between people who have been historically silenced and marginalized. Um, And I'm curious, like, where in your DEIB ethic and like in your praxis, like, do you consider power and its function in the space? Throughout every single conversation that I have, um, you know, I do a lot of training as well. So I do training on unconscious and implicit bias, microaggressions, the what I call generational competencies, which is the multi-generational workforce. 
I do training on allyship, or some people are starting to call it ourship. Um, I do foundational understanding of DEI. Like, let's just boil down to the basics. Like, what is diversity? What is inclusion? What is, you know, all of those facets of it? And I help people understand that power and privilege are not dirty words in this work, because every single one of us at some point in a relationship will have power and will have privilege. It's a matter of how we use it. Do we use it for good or do we use it to benefit ourselves or use it for evil? So helping people understand first and foremost, getting past the, the wokeness of it all, of understanding that privilege is not bad, you know? And, and I, as a black woman, I will have privilege sometimes that my husband doesn't as a black man because purely because I'm a woman or because I'm a black woman. Um, and maybe he's viewed differently as a black man in the same situation. So I can now use my power, my privilege to benefit him in that situation. So I think when I break it down like that, I help people understand and really look around how they yield their power um, in a way that may negatively impact someone, although it could be unintentionally, but at least increasing that level of awareness. So they realize like, oh, in this moment right now, I have this power and I can use it. How am I going to use it? How am I going to manifest it in a way that is going to make this situation better for this person? Because right now they're in a bad situation, whatever that situation may be in the workplace. So that, that's how I help people really think about power. Again, that is not a dirty word. Privilege is not a dirty word. You know, we're at the top of the decade. As I look at the, land, the political landscape, Dr. Session, I don't know, fam. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> I don't know, dog. I I, I think yeah, um looking kind of shaky. <laughs> it's looking kind of shaky. Um and so it, to that end, right, as you look at like, you know, potential like political changes, uh shifts in power, yeah, um, white supremacist uh political parties, mm-hmm. or rather white supremacy becoming more and more uh publicly openly mainstream. Not to say that white supremacy ever has gone away or anything like mm-hmm. that, but that but that like these like we're seeing rhetoric we're seeing like rhetoric being like we're seeing rhetoric uh the volume knob on certain rhetoric like reaching higher decibel levels than even it was perhaps in like the 60s we're seeing like similar thoughts and ideas and principles like really being affirmed uh that were affirmed um about 50 years ago Mm -hmm. i'm curious like where do you see like the future of this work between like now and 2030 that's a great question. You know, of course, everyone's paying attention to the midterms. You know, here we are in February, uh, March, rather, 2022. Midterms are coming up. So, yeah, you're right. It's scary. It's, shaky. it's a little shaky out there. Now, how's that? Pl- how will that play out in the workplace? I don't know. I think, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of that now, as you mentioned, with the laws changing in Texas and Florida in particular, that are impacting, you know, underrepresented groups, whether it's LGBTQ plus or whether it's um, you know, women um, and their health, you know, being able to do what they want with their bodies, that they need to do with their bodies, or if it's with voter suppression, all those things will have a ripple effect into the workplace because at the end of the day, we show up and we're employees and we still have to deal with these things that happen around us socially. And that's where some of the justice part comes into the work as well because organizations realize that they can have an influence in terms of who they put money behind or what their messaging is in the communities in which they serve. And the clients or customers that they, you know, serve, they're diverse clients, they're diverse communities. So it's scary, uh, you know, just quite candidly and honestly, I think the conversations now are much louder and they're in much more public spaces because, A, we have more access to social media than we ever had before. People, as you said, being very much more emboldened, I would say probably since 
uh, when did Obama get into the office? 2008. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Dating back to then, I would say, um, you know, from 2006 or seven when he started his campaign until he won and then he won a second time. Like the voices got louder and louder and louder, right? Because their world was being disrupted. What they knew to be the norm no longer was. And that scared a lot of people. And, and now the voices, they've been even more empowered because of who was in office during the last administration and the whole campaign that he ran off of. So when you factor all of that in, you know, these conversations were happening around us all the time. It's just that people felt, you know, that they had to be politically correct or that they couldn't say certain things because they would, you know, lose their job or get in trouble. And now we're seeing that that hasn't been the case. So they can do it and they can say it. You know, uh, Dr. Session, this has been a fire conversation. Um, I feel like we could continue on forever. I really, <laughs> I really want to give you space, though. Like, just any final words or like shout outs before we let you go. Final words, I would say first and foremost, thanks again for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. And you know, if anyone's interested in the work that I do or want to continue this conversation, they can always reach out to me on any social media platform at Dr. Tana M. Session, uh, as well as my website, TanaMSession.com. Um, because, you know, like yourself, I could talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> I love it. Dr. Session, I would consider you a friend of the show. Excited to have you back um, when you're ready to be back. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you so much. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.